Section 14 of the Natural History, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read for you by Chiquito Crasto. The Natural History, Volume 4, by Pliny the Elder. Translated by John Bostock and Henry Thomas Riley. Section 14. Book 17. Chapter 29. The Cultivation of the Olive. Cato has treated so well of the precautions that are necessary in cultivating the olive that we cannot do better than employ his own words on the subject. Let the slips of olive, says he, which you are about to plant in the hole, be three feet long, and be very careful in your treatment of them, so as not to injure the bark when you are smoothing or cutting them. Those that you are going to plant in the nursery should be a foot in length, and you should plant them the following way. Let the spot be turned up with the mattock, and the soil be well loosened. When you put the cutting in the ground, press it down with a foot only. If there is any difficulty in making it descend, drive it down with a mallet or the handle of the dibble, but be careful not to break the bark in doing so. Taking care not to make a hole first with the dibble, for the slip will have the better chance of surviving the other way. When the slip is three years old, a due care must be taken to observe the direction in which each side of the bark is situated. If you are planting in holes or furrows, you must put in the cuttings by threes, but be careful to keep them separate. Above ground, however, they should not be more than four fingers distant from one another, and each of them must have a bud or eye above ground. In taking up the olive for transplanting, you must use the greatest caution, and see that there is as much earth left above the roots as possible. When you have covered the roots well up, tread down the earth with a foot, so that nothing may injure the plant. Chapter 30. Transplanting Operations as Distributed Throughout the Various Seasons of the Year If the enquiry is made, what is the proper season for planting the olive, my answer will be, when the soil is dry, at seed time, when it is rich in spring. The following is the advice given by Cato on the subject. Begin pruning your olive yard 15 days before the vernal equinox. From that period for 40 days will be a good time for doing so. In pruning, adopt the following rules. When the ground is extremely productive, remove all the dry branches or such as may have been broken by the wind. Where it is not so prolific, you must cut away still more. Then tie them well up and remove all tangled branches so as to lighten the roots. In autumn, clear away the roots of the olive and then manure them. The man who labours most assiduously and most earnestly will remove the very smallest fibres that are attached to the roots. If, however, he hoes negligently, the roots will soon appear again above ground and become thicker than ever, the consequence of which will be that the vigour of the tree will be expended in the roots. We have already stated, when speaking on the subject of oil, which are the different varieties of the olive, in what kind of soil it ought to be planted, and what is the proper aspect for the olive yard? Mago recommends that the olive should be planted on declivities and in dry spots, in an argillaceous soil and between autumn and the winter equinox. If, on the other hand, the soil is thick, humid, or somewhat damp even, it ought to be planted between harvest and the winter solstice. Advice, however, it should be remembered, applicable to Africa more particularly. At the present day, it is mostly the custom in Italy to plant the olive in spring, but if it is a thought desirable to do so in the autumn as well, there are only four days in the forty between the equinox and the setting of the Virgiliae that are unfavourable for planting it. 
It is a practice peculiar to Africa to engraft the olive on the wild olive only, a tree which is to be made everlasting, as it were, for when it becomes old, the best of the suckers are carefully trained for adoption by grafting, and in this way, in another tree, it grows young again, an operation which may be repeated continuously as often as needed, so much so, indeed, that the same olive yard will last for ages. The wild olive also is propagated, both by insertion and inoculation. It is not advisable to plant the olive in a site where the quercus has been lately rooted up. For the earthworms, known as the Dorochi, which breed in the roots of the Quercus, are apt to get into that of the olive. It has been found from practical experience that it is not advisable to bury the cuttings in the ground, nor yet to dry them before they are planted out. Experience has also taught us that it is the best plan to clean an old olive yard every other year. It has been found from practical experience that it is not advisable to bury the cuttings in the ground nor yet to dry them before they are planted out. Experience has taught us that it is the best plan to clean an old olive yard every other year between the vernal equinox and the rising of the vergiliae, and to lay moss about the roots, to dig holes also round the trees every year, just after the summer solstice, two cubits wide by a foot in depth, and to manure them every third year. Mago too recommends that the almond should be planted between the setting of Arcturus and the winter solstice. All the varieties, however, of the pear, he says, should not be planted at the same time, as they do not all blossom together. Those with oblong or round fruit should be planted between the setting of the Vergiliae and the winter solstice, and the other kinds in the middle of the winter, after the setting of the constellation of the arrow, on a site that looks towards the east or north. The laurel should be planted between the setting of the eagle and that of the arrow, for we find that the proper time for planting is equally connected with the aspect of the heavenly bodies. For the most part, it has been recommended that this should be done in spring and autumn, but there is another appropriate period also, though known to but a few, about the rising of the dog star, namely. It is not, however, equally advantageous in all localities. Still, I ought not to omit making mention of it, as I am not setting forth the peculiar advantages of any one country in particular, but I am inquiring into the operation of nature taken as a whole. In the region of Serenaica, the planting is generally done while the Athesian winds prevail, and the same in the case in Greece, and with the olive more particularly in Laconia. At this period also, the vine is planted in the island of Kos, and in the rest of Greece they do not neglect to inoculate and graft though they do not plant their trees just then. The natural qualities, too, of the respective localities exercise a very considerable influence in this respect. For in Egypt they plant in any month, as also in all other countries where summer rains do not prevail, India and Ethiopia, for instance. When trees are not planted in the spring, they must be planted in autumn as a matter of course. There are three stated periods then for germination, spring, the rising of the dog star, and that of Arcturus. And indeed, it is not the animated beings only that are ardent for the propagation of their species. For this desire is manifested in even a greater degree by the earth and all its vegetable productions. To employ this tendency at the proper moment is the most advantageous method of ensuring an abundant increase. These moments, too, are of a peculiar importance in relation to the process of grafting, as it is then that the two productions manifest a mutual desire of uniting. 
Those who prefer the spring for grafting commence operations immediately after the vernal equinox, reckoning on the fact that when the buds are just coming out, a thing that greatly facilitates the union of the barks. On the other hand, those who prefer the autumn graft immediately after the rising of Arcturus, because then the graft at once takes root in some degree and becomes seasoned for spring, so as not to exhaust its strength all at once in the process of germination. However, there are fixed periods of the year, in all cases, for certain trees. Thus the cherry, for instance, and the almond are either planted or grafted about the winter solstice. For many trees, the nature of the locality will be the best guide. Thus, where the soil is cold and moist, it is best to plant in spring, and where it is dry and hot, in autumn. Taking Italy in general, the proper periods for these operations may be thus distributed. The mulberry is planted at any time between the Ides of February and the vernal equinox, the pear in the autumn, but not beyond the fifteenth day before the winter solstice. The summer apples, the keens, the sorb, and the plum between midwinter and the Ides of February, the Greek carob and the peach at any time in the autumn before the winter solstice, the various nuts such as the walnut, pine, filbert, almond, and chestnut between the calends of March and the Ides of that month, the willow and the broom about the calends of March. The broom is grown from seed and in a dry soil, the willow from plants, in a damp locality, as already stated on former occasions. That I may omit nothing to my knowledge of the facts that I have anywhere been able to ascertain, I shall here add a new method of grafting which has been discovered by Columella, as he asserts, by the aid of which trees even of a heterogeneous or dissociable nature may be made to unite, such, for instance, as the fig and the olive. In accordance with this plan, he recommends that a fig tree should be planted near an olive, at a distance sufficiently near to admit of the fig being touched by a branch of the olive, when extended to lie full length. As supple and pliant a one as possible being selected for the purpose, and due care being taken all the time to render it season by keeping it constantly on the stretch. After this, when the fig has gained sufficient vigour, a thing that generally happens at the end of three or five years at most, the top of it is cut off, and the end of the olive branch being also cut to a point in the manner already stated. This point is then to be inserted in the trunk of the fig and made secure with cords, lest, being bent, it should happen to rebound. In this way, we find the method of propagating by layers combined with that of grafting. This union between the two parent trees is allowed to continue for three years, and then in the fourth the branch is cut away and left entirely upon the tree that has so adopted it. This method, however, is not at present universally known, at all events, so far as I have been able to ascertain. Chapter 31. Cleaning and Bearing the Roots and Moulding Them in addition to these particulars, the same considerations that I have already mentioned in reference to warm or cold, moist or dry soils, have also taught us the necessity of trenching around the roots. These trenches, however, in a moist, watery soil, should be neither wide nor deep, while the contrary is the case where the ground is hot and dry, it being the object, in the latter instance, to let them receive and retain as much water as possible. The rule is applicable to the culture of old trees as well. For in very hot places, the roots are well moulded in summer and carefully covered up to prevent the heat of the sun from parching them. In other places, again, the ground is cleared away from the roots in order to give free access to the air, while in winter they are carefully moulded to protect them from the frost. 
The contrary is the case, however, in hot climate, for there they bear the roots in winter. For the purpose of ensuring a supply of moisture to the parched fibres, in all places, the rule is to make a circular trench three feet in width at the foot of the tree. This, however, it is not possible to do in meadows, where the roots, in their fondness for the sun and showers, range near the surface far and wide. Such, then, are the general observations that we have to make in reference to the planting and grafting of trees that we value for their roots. Chapter 32. Willow Beds It now remains to give an account of those trees which are planted for the sake of others, the wine, more particularly, and the wood of which is cut from time to time. Holding the very first rank among these, we find the willow, a tree that is always planted in a moist soil. The hole, however, should be two feet and a half in depth, and the slip a foot and a half only in length. Willow stakes are also used for the same purpose, and the stouter they are, the better. The distance left between these last should be six feet. When they are three years old, their growth is checked by cutting them down within a couple of feet from the ground, the object being to make them spread out, so that by the aid of their branches they may be cleared without the necessity of using a ladder, for the willow is the most productive the nearer its branches are to the ground. It is generally recommended to trench round the willow every year in the month of April, such is the mode of cultivation enjoyed for the osseo willow. The stake willow is reproduced both from the suckers and cuttings in a trench of the same dimension. Stakes may be cut from it at the end of about three years mostly. These stakes are also used to supply the place of the trees as they grow old, being fixed in the ground as layers and cut away from the trunk at the end of a year. A single jugarum of osseo willows will supply osseo sufficient for 25 jugars of wine. It is for a similar purpose that the white poplar is grown, the trenches being two feet deep and the cutting a foot and a half in length. It is left to dry for a couple of days before it is planted, and a space is left between the plants a foot and a palm in width, after which they are covered with earth to the depth of a couple of cubits. Chapter 33. Reed Beds The reed requires a soil still moister even than that employed for the willow. It is planted by placing the bulb of the root that part which some people call the eye, in a trench three-quarters of a foot in depth at intervals of two feet and a half. A reed bed will renew itself spontaneously after the old one has been rooted up, a circumstance which it has been found more beneficial to take advantage of than merely to thin them, as was formerly the practice. The roots being in the habit of creeping and becoming interlaced, a thing that ends eventually in the destruction of the bed. The proper time for planting reeds is before the eyes begin to swell, or in other words, before the calends of March. The reed continues to increase until the winter solstice, but ceases to do so when it begins to grow hard, a sign that it is fit for cutting. It is generally thought, too, that the reed requires to be trenched round as often as the vine. The reed also is planted in a horizontal position, and then covered with earth to a very great depth. By this method, as many plants spring up as there are eyes. It is propagated also by planting out in trenches a foot in depth, care being taken to cover up two of the eyes, while a third knot is left just on a level with the ground. The head too is bent downwards, that it may not become charged with dew. The reed is usually cut when the moon is on the wane. When required for the vineyard, it is better dried for a year than used in a green state. Chapter 34 
other plants that are cut for poles and stakes. The chestnut is found to produce better stays for the vine than any other tree, both from the facility with which they are worked, their extremely lasting qualities, and the circumstance that, when cut, the tree will bud again more speedily than the willow even. It requires a soil that is light without being gravelly, a moist sandy one more particularly, or else a charcoal earth or a fine tufa even, while at the same time a northern aspect, however cold and shady, and if upon a declivity even, greatly promotes its growth. It refuses to grow, however, in a gravelly soil, or in red earth, chalk, or indeed any kind of fertilizing ground. We have already stated that it is reproduced from the nut, but it will only grow from those of the largest size, and then only when they are sown in heaps of five together. The ground above the nuts should be kept broken from the month of November to February, as it is at that period that the nuts lose their hold, and fall of themselves from the tree, and then take root. There ought to be intervals of a foot in width left between them, and the hole in which they are planted should be nine inches every way. At the end of two years or more, they are transplanted from this seed plot into another, where they are laid out at intervals of a couple of feet. Layers are also employed for the reproduction of this tree, and there is none to which they are better adapted. The root of the plant is left exposed, and the layer is placed in the trench at full length, with the summit also protruding from the earth the result being that it shoots from the top as well as the root. When transplanted, however, it is very hard to be reconciled as it stands in dread of all change. Hence it is that it is nearly two years before it will begin to shoot upward, from which circumstance it is generally preferred to rear the slips in the nursery from the nut itself to obtaining them from quicksets. The mode of cultivation does not differ from that employed with the plants already mentioned. It is trenched around and carefully locked for two successive years, after which it is able to take care of itself. The shade it gives sufficing to stifle all superfluous suckers. Before the end of the sixth year, it is fit for cutting. A single jugurum of chestnuts will provide stays for twenty jugura of vineyard, and the branches that are taken from near the roots afford a supply of two forked uprights. They will last, too, till after the next cutting of the tree. The Aeschylus, too, is grown in a similar manner, the time for cutting being three years at the latest. Being less difficult, too, to propagate, it may be planted in any kind of earth, the acorn, and it is only with the Aeschylus that this is done, being sown in spring, in a hole nine inches in depth, with intervals between the plants of two feet in width. This tree is lightly hoed four times a year. This kind of stay is the least likely to rot of them all and the more the tree is cut, the more abundantly it shoots. In addition to the above, they also grow other trees for cutting that we have already mentioned. The ash, for instance, the laurel, the peach, the hazel, and the apple. But then they are of slower growth, and the stays made from them, when fixed in the ground, are hardly able to withstand the action of the earth, and much less any moisture. The elder, on the other hand, which affords stakes of the very stoutest quality, is grown from cuttings like the poplar, as to the cypress, we have already spoken of it at sufficient length. End of section 14. Read for you by Chiquito Crasto, Birmingham, Alabama.